morning, everybody. Great to greet you on this first weekend of fall break. It's a worship together weekend, so always good to have our kids in the service, although I'm not sure they feel the same way about it. All right, and I want to greet everybody online who are joining us wherever you might be, and I want to give a special shout-out and say congratulations to the newlyweds in Germany. You know who I'm talking about, and I'll tell you that story sometime. Just applaud, applaud for them real quickly. I'll tell you that story sometime. It's a pretty good story. Grab a Bible and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew and find the ninth chapter. The Gospel of Matthew in the ninth chapter. If you're a guest with us today, we're so glad you're here. And uh, I will just share with you that we are working our way verse by verse by verse through the Gospel of Matthew in a sermon series called Let's Talk About Jesus. And we've got a great, great passage of Scripture to look at this morning. As we begin, I want to ask you a question. And if you're taking notes, write this question down somewhere under the introduction on your insert there because it's something I want you to think about. Here's the question. What do you think is the greatest thing Jesus could do for you in your life? That's the question. If you are forced to answer, what do you think is the greatest thing Jesus could do for you in your life? I'm sure that we could get a lot of great answers to that question, um, but here's the deal. Today, I'm going to give you what I believe is an irrefutable answer to that question because the greatest thing that Jesus can do for you in your life is also the greatest thing that Jesus can do for me in my life is the greatest thing that Jesus could do for any of us, and that's what I want to show you in this great, great passage of Scripture. And so, I know you just sat down, but I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand with me again for the reading of God's Word. Stand together as we look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. It's not a lengthy passage of Scripture. You follow along as I read. Here we go. <clears throat> Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to His own town. Some men brought to Him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And this man got up and went home. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to man. All right, there it is. You can be seated. We always ask God's blessing and the, on the reading and the hearing of His Word. Right off the bat, I want to tell you that this is a story that is found in three of the four Gospels. Obviously, we just read it in Matthew chapter 9, but this story is also told in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Luke as well. And like many stories that are told in multiple Gospels, the details from Gospel to Gospel can be a little different. I don't know if you know this or not, but of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three of them, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of Luke are what's called synoptic Gospels. I don't know if you've ever heard that word or not synoptic gospels. And they're called synoptic gospels because they include many of the same stories, oftentimes in the same sequence, and oftentimes with very similar wording. The word synoptic itself means taking a common view. But that doesn't mean that each one of the gospel accounts of the same story 
are identical. There can be some differences, and that just helps us to gain more insight and more understanding into the story itself. So, we're going to talk about this story today, and we're going to be borrowing some information from Mark's and Luke's gospel as well. And as we do, I want to go back to that first question. What is the greatest thing that Jesus can do for you? I know that we could get a lot of answers to that question, as I said earlier, and I'm sure that every answer we got this morning would be really, really good and have a lot of merit. But I want you to understand there's really only one answer, one answer that's the same for all of us, and here it is. The greatest thing that Jesus can do for you is give you the forgiveness of sin. Somebody say amen to that this morning. And when you think about it, that really is one of, if not the most distinctive things about the Christian faith. I mean, the Christian faith has many virtues and many values, but the essential message from God to man who is sinful, and the Bible makes that clear, the Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the essential message from God to man is that you can receive the complete and full forgiveness of your sin. That's the heart of the Christian message, and that's the main lesson in this story. Now, if you've been with us for a while, you know that we have divided the Gospel of Matthew up into different sections, and we are currently in what, at least to me, is the third section of Matthew's Gospel as we're studying through it verse by verse by verse. The third section is Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, and I told you from the beginning that I'm calling that section of Matthew's gospel glimpses of greatness because what we see over and over again in those three chapters is Jesus doing great things and Jesus calling his followers to embrace a greater life. Let's just think for a moment about the great things that we've already seen Jesus do as we've begun to work our way through chapters 8, 9, and 10. Chapter uh, 8, verses 1 through 15 tells us three stories of, of uh, healings. Jesus healed a leper, Jesus healed a centurion's servant, and Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Then you get to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16, and we see this story where at the end of the day, people are bringing all the demon-possessed and all the sick to Jesus, and he's healing all of them. Everyone say all of them. All of them with a word. How cool is that? With a word. Then we get a little bit further into the eighth chapter, and we see that story of Jesus and the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. By the way, I'm leaving on Tuesday. Sandy and I are leaving on Tuesday to take 30 people here from the church to the Holy Land. So I know some of you here are going with me. I want you to keep us in your prayers while we're gone. We'll be, we'll be on the Sea of Galilee. We'll be walking around the Sea of Galilee. It's going to be the coolest experience for many of you. Jesus in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. A, a furious storm comes up. They wake Jesus up, and he stands up, and he calms the wind and the waves. Then we get a little bit further in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus, uh, when he lands on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he encounters two demoniacs. A demoniac is just a good way to describe a man or a woman who was possessed by a demon spirit. So he encounters two demoniacs, and he sets those men free. So we've seen Jesus having power over sickness and disease. We've seen Jesus having power over demon spirits. We've seen Jesus having power over nature. When we get to chapter 9, verses 1 through 8, the text before us, we see a whole new level of Jesus's authority here, and it's demonstrated in his power to forgive sin. 
So let's talk about this story. And we're going to do this a little bit different uh, today than we normally do. Normally, we come in here and we read a passage of Scripture, and I give you an outline for the passage that kind of helps us to understand it. But I'm just going to change things up, not changing the way that I preach. Don't anybody get nervous. But I'm just going to change things up a little bit uh, this morning. Let's just talk about the story, and then let's conclude with some application points. Let's just talk about the story from the beginning of Matthew chapter 9. So, verse 1 tells us that Jesus got back into the boat and he went to his own town. Now, the own town that uh, Matthew is referring to is the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with Jesus' life, you knew that he grew up in the city of Nazareth, a place called Nazareth. But when Jesus began his earthly vocational ministry, he shifted from the city of Nazareth to this town called Capernaum. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 13 says, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake. How many of you remember why Jesus did that? You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. Jesus went into the synagogue one day in Nazareth, and he read from the Old Testament scroll of Isaiah, and he rolled it up, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. He read a messianic prophecy, and he said, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then he talked to the people. He got so angry. Remember what happened? They chased him out. And they chased him to the precipice of a cliff. The city of Nazareth is built up on a cliff. If you're going with me to the Holy Land, we're going to stand on that cliff in just a few days. And they tried to throw him off, but Jesus just passed through the crowd. Well, so Jesus came to the conclusion that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. And so he moved from Nazareth to the town of Capernaum. Now, this was during a time in Jesus' ministry when he was incredibly popular, and there's no surprise about that because Jesus, everywhere he went, he was healing the sick, healing the diseased, healing the lame, casting out demons, and so thousands upon thousands of people, and I'm not embellishing that, at this time in his ministry are following after him. And so when he goes to Capernaum, he has a large crowd that gathers around him. Now, we got to borrow from Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel to see what happens next completely. Because both of those gospels tell us that when Jesus was in Capernaum and this large crowd gathered around him, he was in a home. He was in a house. Matthew doesn't include that in his story. And there were so many people that they were spilling out of every opening of the house, every doorway, every window, everything. They were just spilling out of every opening of the house so that anybody knew who came couldn't get on the inside. But what happens next is four men come along carrying a paralytic, a man who was crippled, on a mat. And they wanted so desperately for this paralytic man, this crippled man, to have a personal encounter with Jesus. But let's pa- before we talk about that, let's pause for a moment. Let me, let me just say this. Let's, church, let's just together try to imagine for a moment how difficult it would have been to be crippled, to be a paralytic or a crippled man in Jesus' day. It's difficult now. I don't mean to diminish that. It's difficult at any time. But just imagine how especially difficult it would have been to be crippled in Jesus' day. Why do I say that? Well, there were no wheelchairs. There were no medical devices that would help you get around. No matter where you went, nothing was handicap accessible. That's a big deal in our culture today, isn't it? No ramps, no elevators, no lifts. Didn't matter where you went, in a home or any kind of a public building or outside, it just would have been difficult to get anywhere. Somebody would have to be carrying you all the time. It would have been incredibly difficult to be crippled in Jesus' day. But there's more. On top of the physical limitations, on top of the physical difficulty, there was in Jesus' day this really strong spiritual stigma attached to being sick or to having a disease or being handicapped. 
in any way, there was a really strong spiritual stigma attached to being crippled because there was a common belief in Jesus' day that any sickness, any disease, any handicap was the result of your own sin. How difficult would that have been? I mean, there's a great example of that in John's gospel. John chapter 9 begins by telling about Jesus and the disciples passing by one day or walking down the street one day, and there was a man there who is identified in the gospel as having been born blind. And literally, this is what Jesus' disciples say. You can look it up in John 9.1. Literally, the disciples turn to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And that was their mindset. Any sickness, any disease, any handicap, any physical shortcoming at all was believed in Jesus' day to be the result of your sinfulness. You were just living out the consequences of your sin. Now, I want you to listen to me really close. I I really believe in the truth that all sickness, all sickness today is linked to sin because if there was no sin, there would be no sickness. How many of you know that's true? The Bible, we talked about this last week. When sin entered into the world back in Genesis chapter 3 as a result of Adam and Eve's disobedience, there's not a single part of the world that wasn't infected in some way by sin. If there was no sin, the world would still be the way God created it when he said it's very good. But it is wrong, everyone say wrong, wrong, it is absolutely wrong to believe that sickness, personal sickness, is the result of sin, personal sin. But that's the stigma that this paralytic man, this crippled man, would have been living under. I mean, it was bad enough to be crippled. But how would you feel if you had a sickness or a disease or a handicap and you knew that every single person you encountered, that every single person who looked at you would see you first and foremost as a sinner who was simply experiencing the consequences of your own sin? How brutal would that have been? And most of the time, that would cause somebody who was sick or somebody who had a disease or somebody who was handicapped to live a life of isolation. But that wasn't the case here because the story tells us that this paralytic man, this crippled man, is being brought to Jesus by four other men as they carry him on a mat. And as I said a moment ago, they were so determined to see their friend, this crippled man, have a personal encounter with Jesus that according to, again, Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, when they got there and they saw the crowd flowing out of every opening of the house so that there was no easy, simple way in, they weren't discouraged, and they went up on the roof of the house, and they tore a hole out of the roof, and they literally lowered this crippled man right down, I mean, picture this in your mind, right down to the very feet of Jesus. And that, to me, is an exhibition of great faith. So great, in fact, that this is what Matthew 9, 2 says. Let's just remind ourselves. When Jesus saw their faith, their faith, not just the one man, their faith, all of them together, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, it's interesting that the first thing Jesus says to this crippled man, this paralytic, is take heart. The words take heart literally just mean take courage. Or we could reduce it even further and understand that the first thing Jesus said to this crippled man was don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 
And there's an interesting thing that I want you to understand here. Those words, take heart, in my NIV Bible, which means take courage or don't be afraid, come from a single word in the original language of the New Testament, the Greek word, and that single word is the Greek word tharseo. And the word tharseo is interesting because it refers to a courage that is subjective, or in other words, it refers to a courage that is inside of you. The significance of, no, excuse me, of, of knowing that, oh gosh, the significance of knowing that is that Jesus, when he said, take heart or take courage or don't be afraid, he wasn't saying to this man, all right, in this moment, you need to buck it up, you need to grit your teeth and you need to find some courage. I understand this is an intimidating situation. He was saying to the man, you have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. That's what he was saying. If he was saying, take courage in the sense of you need to find some courage, he would have used a completely different word. It's the Greek word tamao, but he said tharseo, which means you, in, right here in my presence in this moment, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Now, why would that be the case? I mean, that, that had to have been an intimidating setting. I mean, the friends had already no doubt ruffled a lot of feathers by tearing a hole in the roof and disrupting what was going on, and then the intrusion of them lowering this man down at Jesus' feet, and there would have been a crowd of people there right on top of Jesus, and some of the people there were religious leaders, and I'm sure they had a front row seat. It had to be been a very intimidating situation, but Jesus, when all this happened, looked at that man, and the very first thing he said was, you don't have anything to be afraid of. Don't worry about this. Why? Well, I'm going to tell you what I think, okay? And I'm going to preface it that way because this is what I think. I think Jesus said, you don't have anything to be afraid of because I can tell that you, talking to this crippled man, have a broken and a humble heart. I mean, think about it. Here's a man whose entire life had been filled with brokenness. Here's a man whose entire life had been filled with rejection. Not only did he have to deal with the stigma of being crippled, but he also had to deal with the stigma of knowing that everybody who looked at him believed that it was his own sinfulness that caused him to be crippled. And I'm sure that left him feeling broken. And I'm sure that left him feeling, re left him feeling rejected. So he wasn't coming to Jesus, even though he didn't do it on his own. He had the help of his friends. He wasn't coming to Jesus in pride. He was coming to Jesus in brokenness and humility because he had no place else to turn. If someone comes to Jesus in pride, you have a lot of reason to be afraid. How many of you know that's true? I love these stories that people tell sometimes. You know, you'll read a community magazine or a neighborhood magazine that said, if you could meet one person in history, who would it be? And somebody would say, oh, I'd like to meet Jesus. Okay, well, what would it be like if you met Jesus? I'd love to sit down and talk to Jesus. You wouldn't have time to talk to Jesus because you'd be so flat on your face in weeping and sobbing in his presence and the holiness and the majesty of his presence. You wouldn't even be able to get out an intelligible word. And so Jesus said, because I think he looked at his heart, and he saw his brokenness, and he saw the years of rejection, and he saw his humility, and he said, listen, you don't have anything to be afraid of. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know what you think when you read or hear those words, 
But I think it would be easy for any of us to think, well, why did Jesus lead with the forgiveness of sin when it was so obvious that what this man needed most in that moment, or at least it seems like, was a physical healing so he wasn't a paralytic or a cripple any longer? Well, here's the answer. And again, this is what I think. I think when they lowered that man down, Jesus saw his heart. And he saw, first of all, that he was coming to him in brokenness and humility. And he saw, second, that what this man desired most is not just a healing from the physical infirmity of being crippled, but a healing from living under that stigma of sinfulness that caused him to suffer. I think Jesus read his heart. How many of you know that's what Jesus does? He reads our hearts. Jesus knows your heart. Is anybody here today that doesn't understand that Jesus knows everything that's going on in your heart right now today? Jesus knows the heart of every single person that's listening to me today, whether you're sitting in this room or whether you're joining us online, wherever you might be, Jesus knows your heart. He reads our hearts. Jesus does that throughout this story. If you just go on uh, the rest of the story, the next thing that happens uh, is uh, there were some spiritual leaders there, some religious leaders there, some teachers of the law. Your Bible might use the word scribes. It's describing the same thing. Who began, who, who the text says, thought to themselves. This is what they thought to themselves. This fellow is blaspheming. They thought Jesus is blaspheming. Why would they think that because Jesus said your sins are forgiven and they thought to themselves this fellow is blaspheming because only God can forgive sins who's this guy think he is he's not God and Jesus recognized that because Matthew 9 4 says knowing their thoughts Jesus said he knew their thoughts because he read their hearts this is what Jesus does he reads our hearts we might be able to put up a good front to other people around us. We might be able to tell someone that this doesn't bother me or I'm not concerned about that. But Jesus knows. He reads our hearts. And so this paralytic man, this crippled man who lived with the physical limitation of not being able to walk for who knows how long and also the stigma that it was his own sinfulness that caused the problem was there in front of Jesus, and Jesus read his heart. Let me ask you this question. What do you think that man, that crippled man, that paralytic was, was long, what do you think he was longing for in his heart above everything else? I think he was longing for both. He was longing for a physical healing, but he was also longing for a spiritual healing. And so Jesus said, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because Jesus knows that the greatest need of any man, woman, or child anywhere at any time is the forgiveness of sin. We might get confused about it from time to time. We might think this is what I need to make my life better or this is what needs to happen in order for things to get straightened out. But Jesus knows the greatest need that any of us have at any time is the forgiveness of our sin. And that's the very best thing that he has to offer. That's the best thing he can do for us. This is the gift of salvation that we talk about. We're talking about, and we're talking about complete forgiveness. When Jesus forgives our sin, the Bible says in Psalm 103 and verse 12 that he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. How far is that? It's incalculable. There are references in both the Old and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's Isaiah 45. In the New Testament, it's Hebrews chapter 10 that tell us that when God forgives our sin, he remembers them no more. How can you say that about an omniscient God who knows all things? God doesn't suffer from dementia or forgetfulness. God chooses to remember our sin 
no more. I read a great story this week that said that, that when missionaries took the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Eskimos, they discovered that there was no word in the Eskimos language for forgiveness. Now, how big of a problem is that when it comes to translating the Bible? How big a problem is that when it comes to translating the gospel message? If you can't find a word that describes the reality of forgiveness, that's, that's what the gospel message is all about. It's all about forgiveness. And then finally, they stumbled upon a one-word phrase. I'm going to put it up on the screen. And by the way, if any of you think you know how to pronounce this, I'd be glad to talk to you after service in the guest connection room. That's the way it looks in the English rendering, in the English language. But they came up with a one-word phrase that means, literally means, not being able to think about it anymore. And they used that to translate the Bible, and they used that to translate the gospel message. Because it's so true, when God forgives our sin, He chooses to remember it no more. He's not able to think about it anymore. He, he, it's as far as the east is from the west. He buries it in the deepest sea, and He posts no fishing signs all around the shore. Because this is what all of us need. More than anything else in life, this is what all of us need. Now, as I mentioned a moment ago, when all this was happening, the teachers of the law, the religious leaders that were there, began to think to themselves, themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And again, because they thought only God can forgive sins. This guy thinks he's God. This is blasphemy. And so Jesus, again, knowing their hearts, reading their hearts, this is what Jesus does, says in Matthew 9, 5, and 6, which is easier. And how shocking must this have been to the teachers of the law who are just thinking something just thinking something. I mean, how would you like it if you were thinking, how, how would you like if you were someplace people watching and, and somebody, you walked by and you had some kind of a weird thought and they came up to you and they said, oh, really? <laughs> Tell me what you think exactly about the clothes that I'm wearing or something like that. So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, had them been shocking to the teachers of the law, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, get up, take up your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. Now let's focus on the question that they asked. They asked themselves, or Jesus asked the question rather, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? Do you notice that when Jesus asked that question, there's no answer recorded? They didn't even open their mouths. You know why that is? Because they didn't have an answer. There is no answer. Neither is easy. It's not easy to say your sins are forgiven and have it be true. And it's not easy to say to a crippled man, get up and walk and make it happen. Only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can perform a supernatural physical healing. And that was Jesus' point. So when that paralytic man got up and picked up his, his mat and walked, the natural conclusion would have had to have been, this man is God because he can forgive sins and he can make a cripple walk. And that's why our story ends in verse 8 with these words. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to men. That word awe there in my NIV Bible is the uh, word phobos in the original language of the New Testament. It, the word phobos has the fundamental meaning of fear, but when it's translated in the New Testament, most of the time it's translated the same way it is here in my NIV Bible as awe. They were filled with awe at what they had just witnessed and praised God who had given such authority to men. Now, what that means is they just knew, they knew not so much the teachers of the law 
who were the skeptics, but the rest of the people, they knew that they were not in the presence of some ordinary man. They were in the presence of God. When they were in the presence of Jesus, they were in the presence of God, and it filled them with phobos or awe. What an incredible story. Well, let me go back and highlight three things real quickly, and I'll do this quickly, I promise. Write these down in your notes. First thing that just jumps off the page to me, and it's not something new, it's a repeat, the greatest need of every human life is the forgiveness of sin. The greatest need of every human life is the forgiveness of sin. How ironic is it then that we live in a church culture today where many people are hesitant to talk about sin because it's too negative or it turns people away. How ironic is it that we live in an American church culture today where some preachers believe that it's hurtful or unnecessary to even mention the word sin? How ironic is it that some preachers take a pragmatic approach to church growth and know that they can draw a larger crowd with a lighter approach when it comes to the content of the message? The Bible says, as it talks about sin, that if we fail to preach and teach sin, we fail God. I don't enjoy standing up talking about sin, sin, sin all the time. I see these videos on YouTube about church services where they do fun things and they're laughing. It's, oh, how fun is this? We've got the funnest church, the most fun church around. I'd like to be a part of that sometime. But if you don't talk about sin, the reality of sin, the danger of sin, you fail God. And I'm more concerned about being able to answer to God one day than I am about you going home with a smile on your face. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says that sin is rebellion against God, that it perverts the will, that it pollutes the body, that it puts you under the dominion of the devil, and that subjects you to the wrath of God. That's what the Bible says about sin. Now, let's just think about that for a moment. If all that is true, and it's absolutely true because it comes from the Bible, I don't make any of that up. If all that is true, then how would we not come to the conclusion that the absolute best news that you could ever give anyone is the news that God can and will forgive their sin. Write down next to number two. The greatest stumbling block to the forgiveness of sin is pride. So these teachers of the law, they didn't understand anything about what was happening because they didn't understand how significant it was to receive the forgiveness of sin. They didn't understand how significant it was because they didn't think they had any sin. They were religious leaders. That means that they spent their days going through the motions of religious rules and regulations. And they thought because they went through the motions of religious rules and regulations that everything was good, but their hearts weren't involved in that. And so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there was no forgiveness for sin in their lives, even though they thought they didn't need it. And there are a lot of people like that today. A lot of people think you just go through the rules, or I mean, excuse me, yes, go through the motions of what we think of as religious rules and rituals and everything's going to be okay. But you've got to have the involvement of the heart to have the forgiveness of sin. They were so filled with pride in themselves and their rules and their regulations that they never thought that they needed forgiveness. I've been so many places, I thought about that this week, I've been so many places, different churches where I've preached and talked and taught about forgiveness and some people are broken and they can't get down front quick enough to receive the grace of God that gives the forgiveness of sin and some people walk out the door business as usual. What makes the difference between the two? One recognizes their need and the other doesn't and oftentimes people don't recognize their need for forgiveness because they're so filled with pride. The third thing is this. 
The greatest response to the recognition of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do is living in awe. And Brian, you can come and we'll close. The greatest response to the recognition of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do is living in awe. Living in awe of God should characterize the life of every single Christian. And it should be a huge motivation, a huge part of our motivation for the way we live our lives. Let me ask you a question. You ever gone through a bad time in your life? We could all answer yes. I've gone through bad times in my life. But you know what? No matter how bad the time is, no matter what, no matter how difficult it is, ultimately, thankfully, I'm always able to get to a point where I realize that no matter how bad things might be in my life, I still have a God who loves me enough to send his one and only unique son into the world to die on the cross, to pay the penalty for my sin, and then offer me complete forgiveness to change my life for eternity. And that causes me to be able to live in awe of a God like that. So, we began with a question. Let's close with a question. Who do you know in your life today who has a need that can only be met by Jesus? Just like that paralytic man, that crippled man, had a, had a need that can only be met by Jesus. Who do you know like that today? What's keeping you from finding a way, like those four men found a way to bring him to Jesus, what's keeping you from finding a way to bring that friend that person, to Jesus. Father in heaven, I'm so thankful for the chance to talk about these things today.